People Smart, enabling organisations and individuals to be disability inclusive and accessible. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Be People Smart podcast. I'm Jodie Greer, I'm the founder of Be People Smart, and I am your host. And I'm here to bust some more myths. And thankfully for me, I'm joined by another wonderful guest speaker, Sarah Petherbridge. So I'm going to ask Sarah to introduce herself. Sarah, can you tell us a bit about yourself, please? Oh, hi, everyone. Yeah, so I'm Sarah. I am a disability awareness trainer and I'm also a public speaker. And I live in Bristol, um, but I go everywhere around the country. And, and I'm really, really passionate about disability inclusion and really excited to be on this podcast with Jodie. So um, great to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. And I'm just as excited. So, you know, when you meet your kindred spirits, it's always nice to uh, have a chat. And to be fair, um, Sarah, it's just really nice to chat to. So you get to join in this time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so the myths that Sarah and I are going to be busting today, there are two of them, plus whatever else comes up in conversation. And they are normal people aren't disabled and disabled employees wouldn't improve my business. So this is quite exciting because these are subjects that I speak about a lot. And I know Sarah does, too. So this is quite cool, actually. So, Sarah, let's just kick off. What is normal anyway? <laughs> yeah, just normal is a really, really subjective word to need because it's based on people's own interpretation of the word normal. It's based on people's own ideas. You know? So your idea of normal could be different to my idea of normal. And um, you know, these ideas are based on people's stereotypes and attitudes and perceptions about things and all of that is based on everyone's lived experience so it's going to be different for everyone and it's going to be really subjective so it's based on where you went to school where you went to college who you mix with your family values even where you live so all of that is going to um, create ideas in your mind, you know, your stereotypes, your perception, etc. What is normal? And, and it's such a subjective um, word, and it's something that I have a real problem with because the the ripple effects of using that word is, is enormous, not just in the workplace but also in society. So, you know, in the workplace, you could have, for example, a white male, able person um, who's never had any experience of working with someone with a disability, doesn't know how to work with someone with a disability, um, and they may find it difficult because it's not normal um, in their mind. So, um, sadly, they may sort of um, gravitate towards people that are like themselves, i.e. normal. And that can then lead to things like unconscious bias um, and also exclusion and of one group of people um, and discrimination at work. So it's a really, you know, slippery um, slope and it's something that I'm quite sort of um, passionate about, you know, and, and talking to people about not using the word normal. Um, and I don't know what you think about this, but I do think it's like, um, it's ableist. I think, you know, um, by saying to people that you're not normal, it's actually 
a form of ableist language. It you know devalued that person. It makes them feel worthless. So yeah, it's it's a really tricky world to news. So I kind of rather not need it at all, really. I completely agree. When it comes to human beings, there is no such thing as normal. We need to scrap the word. And ironically, mm. so I'm non-disabled, or as I normally say, currently non-disabled, because that's more apt. But it, I thought I would actually find being called normal quite offensive. It's, mm. What does that even mean? I mean, I'm a human being. I'm, I don't think anybody who knows me well would ever accuse me of being normal anyway. But it's just, it's a very strange term for an actual person. So to suggest someone's abnormal because they don't fit into some kind of vision is really offensive. Yeah, it is. And it's just, it's very subjective, you know, and there's no right or wrong answer to this. And I just think it's a slippery path. And another word that I hate while we're talking about labels is difficult. I mean, you know, someone being difficult because they're not, they don't fit into your idea of what is normal. Um, and I've been called difficult, you know, throughout my life at several times. And I really, really hate that because it, you know, people don't understand it, it's not me being difficult, but it it's the fact that my needs are not being met. You know, it's the environment that is difficult and my needs are not being met. And so people might think I'm being difficult, but it's not me personally, it's because I've got needs that are not being met I can't function I can't do my job properly so help me meet my needs um, but yeah it's difficult is I find it's a horrible word to use the word and that is based on people's idea of what is normal so I completely agree and I think difficult I, I, yeah I can't imagine being told it was difficult just because I needed an adjustment or you know communicating differently or whatever um, but actually on that point, and we will keep continue with our myths, but as Sarah, um, tell our listeners a little bit about you then and why you do have um, some specific needs, because, of course, they may not know. Yeah, so um, I'm born profoundly deaf. I was, bo- I was born profoundly deaf. And, um, so my specific need as a deaf person is that my main form of communication is lip reading. So um, I do know a little bit of British Sign Language or BSL, but I'm not fluent in it. Um, so when it comes to lip reading, what that means is that I need um, people to look at me um, and just speak normally. You don't need to go all big mouth or, you know, um, over and enunciate your words or even start shouting at me. None of that. Just be normal, but being a well-lit environment so not dark for example and and just sort of face me so that I can lip read because I'm an expert lip reader so um, you know I can lip read people you know down the road and, and work out what they're saying as long as they're well lit um, so that's my main need and also I think um, you know just sort of being mindful in group situations you know where I sit so that I can see everyone um, you know, just things like group meetings or when we go out for dinner, um, and maybe just going to places that are quiet, not noisy, um, because it's just a bit easier for me to follow what people are saying. Um, yeah, that's it's that sort of communication needs my main needs, really. Yeah, 
I think it's really nice for listeners to get to know the uh, speakers a little more. But also, it's making me think that maybe you need to come back and do another episode, Sarah, so we can discuss this a lot more and bust some more myths on those subjects. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So you heard it here. You are all my witness. <laughs> Sarah. <laughs> I can remind you of that in a few weeks' time. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. And we'll definitely do something um, around kind of death myths and that sort of thing. So going back to what we're talking about today. Yeah, definitely. I think the word normal needs to disappear. But another one I just want to mention um, is neurotypical. Because we talk about it a lot and we talk about obviously neurodiversity and neurodivergent people. And as much as that's really impossible, really important, we, of course, have to kind of frame a group of people this way to make sure that people are aware that people you know learn differently and perform differently and work differently but you know do we really need to label people because that's the only reason we then call other people neurotypical and in my mind it's just another way of saying neuronormal and it is a bit cringe and actually I'm supposedly neurotypical which surprises everybody around me, including myself. I think everybody's, you know, got their quirks or whatever we want to say, because I definitely do. Um, And I'd love to find, and I haven't got the answers, some different language so that we get rid of normal, definitely. But even when it comes to neurodiversity, that we can find some different languages so that we're just people, yeah, I know. And I, to, to be honest with you, I've never heard the term neurotypical before I met you. So that was a new one for me. And I thought, oh, I've never heard of that label before. Um, and I guess probably because, you know, I try not to label people because my belief is that everyone is unique. Everyone is just different. And, they, and we're just all human beings. We're just our own person with our own needs and quirks, like you said. Why is it even need a label? Yeah. Um, so probably why I've never heard of neurotypical, but hey, I learn something new every day. Um, but I guess for me, what, if I was to call people anything that don't have any disability or learn to have condition um, and can live their life fully without any barriers or hurdles, I tend to use the word able, you know, part of my disability awareness training. It's pretty non-offensive. Um, it's just um, a way of saying, you know, those people don't have disability or long-term health condition um, or, or, you know, they don't face any barriers or hurdles like we do. So it's just it's just the point of uh, distinguishing different groups of people for the purpose of my training. But um, in terms of labelling, I think, you know, it can be a bit, difficult and again it can be subjective and slippery in my mind yeah yeah I think you're right and I mean I use the term non-disabled but it's the reality is the only reason we need any of this terminology is because the world is full of barriers and for us to remove the barriers we Mm. need to be able to explain what those barriers are impacting you know how individuals are being impacted And so we need to say, you know, disabled people or um, autistic people or, Mm. you know, dyslexic people or whatever it would be. Um, 
so the labels only really are needed because the world isn't fit for purpose. I kind of live for the day that, you know, accessibility and inclusion are literally just absolute standard. We won't need any labels because you still need adjustments. But, you know, as a rule, premises, services, solutions, they'll just work for people. Yeah, and, and that would be, I, I agree with you, you know, it would be great to get to a situation where you don't need diversity and including ladies in team, you know, um, in the company, because it's all inclusive, everything is all inclusive, accessible, and there are no barriers, there's no hurdles, and what have you. Um, but like you said, we're not there yet, so that's why, you know, we have people like us, you know, raising awareness, um, we have DNI teams and companies, etc., and businesses, um, and so we do need to have some sort of distinction between people who can live life fully um, every day and people who can't, because you know they are uh, deaf, like myself, or blind, and so on. So I think it, it needs for, for training, but um, I do think we shouldn't get into the habit of labeling everyone all the time yeah definitely it was actually i had a bit of a funny exchange recently with someone on linkedin and it was kind of tongue-in-cheek but they said to me well what would you call disabled people and i said well usually their name um (laughs) (laughs) good answer because i think this is the other thing when people are learning and they're becoming more aware, which is brilliant, and I never fault anyone for wanting to improve and to be more inclusive and accessible, but then it's almost like they, they, they get fixated on, you know, what terminology they use to make sure that they are addressing the disability in the room and they're doing it respectfully. Like, but is that actually appropriate today and in this setting? Um so, yeah, I think that's the other thing. So some of it is also a big thing for me around inclusive language. Because mm, mastered. I can have a whole <laughs> podcast on that. Mastered. <laughs> yeah, exactly that. So I just wanted to touch on that with you because I know it is something that you're also passionate about. Mm. And a part of that is labels. But part of it is just literally, I suppose, knowing the difference between when you even need to reference a disability but also just general you know communication skills and language use so that you get the point right that it isn't always necessary hopefully that makes sense yeah I think what you mean it was not always necessary to use the word disability you mean. Yeah. yeah I think I think the thing I'm mean, I've written blogs about this is something I'm very passionate about but I think you know ultimately you know, we are people, you know, we're human beings who happen to have a disability. And I think with any communication, I think that's the first important thing to think of, you know, is that, you know, you are a human being, I'm a human being. And it's just, you know, talking to us like human beings and then, you know, asking us what is the best way to um, c- communicate with you about your disability? I think it's based on personal preferences. Um, yes, it can be a bit of a mindful. Everybody's got different you know, personal preferences. and you know, But I think we need to move away from starting a conversation about your disability 
and then you know talking about you as a person to start the conversation with someone as a person you know who you are what you like doing and so on and then ask respectfully how do you want to you know talk about your disability and you know being mindful and respectful that way so i think we just need to tend to focus away from disability and treat people as human beings um, so that's a start and i think also it the, I think the main thing around it is just ask people and 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 don't be afraid to talk to us. We're not we're not going to bite your head off. Um, we know they may get it wrong. We're not going to go, you know, you've got that wrong. But just ask us. And I think some people are a bit frightened to talk to us because they don't know what is the right thing to say or what have you. But if you don't try, you're going to end up marginalising us. So. It's a bit of a vicious circle, so it's a bit of a learning curve for people. Um, but I do think the first thing is to, to look at us as a human being with feeling and emotion. Yeah, do you know, there's a couple of things that makes me think about. One is, that's also why, even though I tend to use the term disabled people when I converse, when I'm you know sharing on socials, but when I do training, depending on who we're, but if I'm doing training and I'm introducing people quite early doors to disability inclusion, I absolutely use person first language. And I do that intentionally because I try to make sure that they also register that the disability is part of this person's identity and that absolutely they are Sarah first. <laughs> um And so I do that intentionally. And sometimes you do find that you might get disabled people in the room who say, oh, you should really say disabled people. Mm. But I also do it from a human centric communication reason. And I'll explain that to them at the time, um, because a lot of people in that room, I don't want them to just immediately jump purely to the disability. I want them to recognize we're all just people and we're all made up of different parts. Yeah, exactly. And it's just really getting, it turns in that mindset around that. And also getting people to focus on our abilities and our strengths, not what we can't do. And, and I think that's really important when we um, talk about the um, this discussion point about how we can bring value to the business. And, and that's really important there. But yeah, it's just, um, it's really important to look at all our, our abilities and strengths and, you know, as a person first and then think about, okay, they've got a disability, what's your need in terms of accessibility and, you know, work does and what have you. Um, and then that's the right time to talk about that. And another thing you made me think about, Sarah, was, and I talk about this quite a lot and I speak about it in training as well, but particularly in Britain, there can be... <laughs> So in the UK, we can have quite a hang up on correcting people and people not wanting to be corrected and feel like that they got something wrong. But it's really important, particularly when it comes to disability and I'm sure other diversity, of course. But it's really important that you're not embarrassed or you don't feel awkward if somebody corrects you, if someone says they prefer an alternative term or whatever that is. Just accept it. It's just a fact. It's not because you're wrong or it's not because, you know, you didn't take care. It's just because, like you said, everybody's got a preference. And if someone shares that with you, just, oh, thanks for letting me know. And then you can change track. And I think that's also an important part because it's not about embarrassment. It's just about communication. 
It is. It's all about being open and honest about what you need and what you prefer. And, you know, people need to be open-minded and take that on board and, you know, and not be defensive when someone corrects them because it's really important. Really, really important. Yeah, I completely agree. So I think we've covered the fact there's no such thing as normal when it comes to people. So I think we've busted a myth. I want to touch on the other one because this is also so important and I was really glad that you chose this as one of the myths to bust today so not only do disabled people bring a lot of value to business Mm. it it can be unrecognized by some businesses and so that's of course where we can bust the myth today Um, but also without disabled people and lived experience in business it can be really hard to achieve, you know, accessibility, to actually, you know, accommodate all of your employees, new acquired disabilities, your customers, or, you know, there's so much that comes, but there's there's so much more to it. So what's your thinking on disabled people bringing value to a business? Yeah, I I agree with what you say, Josie. I think we can bring real value to businesses in so many ways. Um, I think the first one I would say is, going back to my point, is recognising our abilities and our strengths and recognising things that we can do really well and sometimes better than other people. Um, and, you know, there are some skills that people can't do at all, but we can do. But it's really recognising that and harnessing those skills and so to do that, you can really add value to the business. And I'll give you a really great example of this. So at EY, my former employer, they set up a neurodiverse centre of excellence in various locations around the world. And we've got some in the UK. And what these centres do is they actually come up with jobs that the neurodiverse population can do really well because they have unique um, school sets and abilities that perhaps I don't have or anyone else has. And they tend to be jobs around innovation and technology and IT, that sort of thing. But that population can do so well. And they deliberately give these jobs to that population. And in that way, they basically get get barely for clients because they're doing, you know, they're coming up with all these fantastic solutions for clients and they're adding value to the business. And I think that's a great example of really harnessing the skill set of the neurodiverse population. And I think another way that we can also add value to the business is that, you know, you and I will probably bring different views, different perspectives to the workforce. Um, and so it's not just sort of diversity in the terms of the headcount, but it's also diversity in terms of how we do the work. So, you know, I could come up with different ideas, different views, and different solutions. And what that means is more creativity, more innovation, you come up with better solutions for the client, and then you add value for the client, and therefore add value for the business. So, it, you know, it, it's a great way of adding value to the business because we have different ideas and perspectives. And I think the last thing I would say as well is I think this is incredibly important is that by having people with disability in your workforce, um, not only bring diversity in the workforce, but 
it can also help encourage people to be our allies. And, you know, we need our allies, you know, the JD, we need people who have our back, who make sure we're included, make sure we're supported, that we're in a safe space at work. And, and there's no sort of um, great answers on how to be an effective ally, but just being curious and being helpful, being supportive, um, and making sure that we, you know, we can do a job that we are included and supported, all of that is going to help you as an ally become a better person. You know, you're going to be more empathetic. You're going to be more understanding. You're going to be more compassionate. So it's a win-win situation. So you have better allies in the workforce, and you've got people with disability working there. Um, as in value to business because they can do things really well, but also they bring new ideas, new perspectives. So, you know, there's the value. Yeah, definitely. I mean, all of that resonates and you've actually given me more food for thought because I was thinking, first of all, and another thing I have spoke about quite a lot, but by nature, there are often specific skills within disabled people that are not something that's present on a CV. Because it's things like identifying alternative ways of working, new solutions to a problem, all of that stuff, because that's literally how people have to live every day. If the world isn't fit for purpose for them, how do they make it work? And they can't always, you know, spend lots of time doing this. So they've got to find often quick ways around stuff, alternative methods. That's a wonderful skill for any team because you know, that that alternative thinking is where innovation comes from. So yes, that's exactly. hmm. one thing I'd say. The other thing I want to say is about allyship. And it's a funny one because I always say I'm not an ally. I'm a human being when it comes to disabilities because it could be me. Um, but all jokes aside, um, one thing I say about allyship is if you're going to be an ally, then you really do need to walk the walk. Nobody's expecting you as an ally to be an expert in disability inclusion. However, you can't put your name on the top of some sort of structure chart um, as a sponsor or something, and you're an ally by default. You're an ally by action. So that's one thing I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lived experience. You've got to do it every day. It's a behaviour, and it's got to be part of your interaction every day because it's nothing worse than someone being an ally and then they stop being an ally and yeah. you know it's horrible because you think wait a minute I thought you were my ally and what if it's you haven't got that safe space anymore because you haven't got that support so yeah you've got to be consistent yeah definitely so that was what I was thinking but it's also then made me think um, about how that leads in, obviously, how that allyship and, you know, within the workplace and so on. And I know because my history, I led a corporate um, disability network for a decade. And I know you talked about being at EY. You did similar, didn't you, Sarah? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we, um, I set up with others the uh, disability network called Ability EY. They, yeah, we set it up several years ago, and it was called Disability Working Group back then. So it was just a little working group, and, and it, it got bigger and bigger, and then we realised that we had to change the structure, um, and we changed the name to Ability Wise, just to sort of, again, just focusing on what we can do and what, you know, our strength, um, and just sort of moving away from the word disability. 
but honestly, it was one of the best things that I did. I absolutely loved doing it and I met some great people through it. And I think, you know, it's still running really well today. And, you know, I left a while two years ago and it was, you know, it was really sad to walk away from it, really. But it was my baby. Um, but do you want me to tell you how we actually run the um, network? Yeah, go for it. Um, so basically, yes, like I said, we had to change the structure, but um, so what we did in the end, it was like um, an umbrella structure. So we had ability well, as an umbrella, and then underneath, you know, we had different um, communities for different disabilities and long-term health conditions. So I think there was about eight when I left, and um, one of them was the hearing community, which I led. Um, so they all had their own community lead, they had their own budget, their own sort of objectives and, and their strategies and so on. And I was always the co-chair at the top with two others. And then above we had a partner sponsor, which was incredibly important because it just sort of added gravity to the network and, you know, it meant that it was, you know, uh, serious. And also, if we had any problems that we couldn't, um, solve ourselves, we could escalate it up to the partner and he would take it to the partnership board and, and so on. So it was really important to have a partner sponsor. And um, so what we did, we basically <clears throat> you know, had meetings with the community lead and sort of talk about any problems they may have. And um, we also talked to the various operational trying to the business, you know, like IT and HR, recruitment, just to make sure that they're all fully accessible um, for our members. Um, but most importantly, we provided mentoring support for our members. So it was somewhere that they could go to outside of HR, you know, outside of the normal counselling route um, in, uh, in their department. So they can go somewhere um, incompetent, um, and get some help and, um, you know, share their own experiences with other people with similar disabilities and so on. And then we also provided uh, disability awareness training for the firm. So we did loads and loads of webcast, panel events, seminars and so on. So, yeah, it, 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 was, um, it was great. And I was lucky that I had... Um, a day week to do this. You know, my boss recognised at the time that I needed time to do this properly. And I know that they're always the case for everyone. You know, they have to do the running of the network on top of their day job. Was that, was that in your case, Jodie? Yep. So <laughs> really hard, isn't it? Certainly for several years. So I was actually in corporate real estate. And um, so for several years then, it really was a case of doing my day job and running the network. And it was like having a job and a half. Um, yeah. mm. It really was. And also it's because <laughs> you can be a victim of your own success. So when I started with um, the Enable Network, we had a kind of sister network in the Netherlands, which was called Disability. But we partnered up and we both became Enable. So we was Enable UK and Enable NL. And that really got the bit between my teeth. And so I was speaking to people around the world and we ended up launching Enable Networks in, in 12 more countries. So we had them in 14 countries. And then I became like chair of chairs and I would pull us all together so we could share the good stuff we'd been doing and 
you know, give people collateral and ideas because why not just run with something that worked elsewhere if it's going to work for you? So we did all of that stuff, but it really was on top of a job. What helped me was the last few years at Shell, I became the global accessibility lead. And so because there was so much more synergy between my enable role and my actual day job, the 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 lines you know weren't were, were quite blurred so it, mm. it made it a lot easier to find mm. the time because it supported what I did in the day yeah. so I think that was easier but yeah for the first several years it it was a job and a half yeah and it, 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 the people don't realize how much time and effort it is is actually running the network because you know not only are you providing support to your members but you're also running an event then you know it's almost like event management and um, you know doing webinars and, and panel events and so on and you know having to deal with budget and and then so on so I think I was very lucky that my boss recognized and needed that time to do that properly but also more importantly um, I had objectives um, set to part of my uh, performance and pay review around running this network and that I think is really important because um, you know people need to recognize the amount of time and effort you put into running the network and it should be part of everyone's performance and pay review and I know it's not always the case but I did I did have to put my foot down and say look I want objectives as part of my performance review um, and it was it was incorporated and then that, I think that's incredibly important because if you're doing it and you're not recognized and rewarded it can be really demoralizing for you personally but also it sends a message to you that your company doesn't really place that much value on it um, that you know it's not that important and and so it can you kind of start thinking well what am I doing this for you know um, but what about you, Joe? Was it part of your performance and pay review? No, I'll be honest, no. I always put it into my um like my GPA each year, my uh my performance assessment. But I did that because for me it was a metric and for me it was something mm. I absolutely wanted to achieve mm. in the year. Um and my line managers all accepted that. And let's face it, I was always a gob on a stick who was going to make Enable happen no matter what anyone said. So they accepted that too. Um, but the reality was it was never going to, it, it was never going to actually make any a change to, you know, my annual review or whatever. Um, I had a couple of years where I had actually a very supportive line manager who I will just say, recognized and rewarded uh, my activities and and that was nice you know it it was nice to have a proper tangible uh thank you for all the extra effort but I was I did really advocate for this not just for the enable network but for all of our diversity and inclusion networks and everyone who was active I don't mean again a name on a list but anyone who was active to really make this work because the reality is the benefits the businesses is enormous. So enormous. Mm. I think it's really important. And let's be frank, if anyone's listening from any HR department or business leadership, a letter to a line manager saying, you know, Jody did brilliantly, doesn't cut it. <laughs> that is not what real gratitude looks like in a business world. And we know it, right? You know, even if it is, I don't know, a, a hamper with some, you know, nice biscuits and stuff in it, 
I'm not saying that's the answer, by the way, but even if it's something like that, at least it's something literally tangible, a, a real thank you that you can kind of feel and touch or whatever. I won't pretend that financial isn't well received, but, you know, you need to think about the real impact. So if they're having such an impact for your business in such a positive sense, how can you, you know, return some of that gratitude? And I think that's something that's really important, particularly where you aren't either in a position or the way your culture works, you're not literally giving a portion of time to this activity. That's not part of that working week. It is an extra I think the fact that people are so passionate, they're going to do a good job for you. And the fact that, you know, they're still achieving their day job and they're doing this, they are putting some hours in. So it's really important that you're not just rewarding, but really what you're doing is recognising that. Yeah, I think and the recognition is really important. And I think I was lucky that I was rewarded. I mean, in some years I had some bonuses, which was very gratefully received. And that was fantastic. But I do think, um, the recognition is so important and I think um, you know sometimes disability was at the bottom of the leg of the whole DNI arena so you start off with gender and then you've got race and sexuality and the disability is at the bottom um, and, and that was a bit demoralizing and you know just not recognizing disability on an equal level to the other kinds of DNI. Um, and I don't know what it's like now at EY, but it was something that I really struggled with. Um, in fact, they set the overall DNI targeting in the phone, and they just tend to focus on gender and race, um, and didn't really cover disability. So I think, yes, I got rewarded, it was great, but I think the recognition could have been much better. Having said that, I think now things are moving in the right direction since they've left you were just by looking at things on LinkedIn, which is absolutely fantastic to see. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think it's moving up, you know, the radar. Um, people are now realising that, um, you know, disability is an important part of the overall DNA arena. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, I think, it's still a fact in absolute majority of organisations where they do have some form of DNI strategy that either disability is at the bottom or disability oh, is not on, on there. It's not on there. First stop. So part of that, and one thing I would say from an equality perspective is, if you're going to have staff networks for the different protected characteristics, for want of a a different term. Um, then you need to have them for all. And I understand you may need volunteers to do that, but you should encourage them for all and make people, you know, recognize that it is going to be valued and that they are going to be able to spend time making it happen. But the other thing I would say, and I make no reference to any particular companies, um, you need to also think about how you actually support with sponsorship and with finance these networks and part of the reason I say that is I have seen this and it really causes pain points for the people who are trying to make a difference happen if you for instance chuck loads of money at your agenda your gender equality network but then you know you give maybe a quarter of that to your disability network that is not what equality looks like there's only really two ways of doing this fairly it's either there's a standard budget that all of the network gets, or you treat them like mini businesses and they come with their proposals of what they want to do for the year and they submit their you know, budget request. You have that 
adult business conversation mm. and you agree that budget. They're the only two ways it can work. It's going to be set across the board for all the networks or each is treated as an individual sort of mini business um, and they ask for what they need and you have that discussion. But again, that shouldn't be a cop out to say, well, no, we're supporting what they need and we'll give you some of what you need because that's doing exactly the same thing and saying, actually, our priority is, and in this case, I'll say gender. So that's something really important to bear in mind because all you're actually saying to the people on receiving end is, look, we said we'll give you a bit of time to do it. We've done that. I mean, what do you want from us? And actually what we want from you is to genuinely want to achieve disability inclusion as much as you do gender equality. Yeah, absolutely. And I think think the other thing is where the problem is that with gender, um, they tend to be much bigger networks. They would argue that you've got more members, therefore you need more money. Um, you know, they are going to have more women than people with disabilities. Um, so that's one business model of thing. Um, and the other problem as well is that, you know, they t- some businesses rely on data. So basically saying, well, okay, but you've only got a number of people with disabilities, therefore you're a small network and therefore you need a small budget. Well, the problem with that is it's not everyone actually disclosed and have a disability. So data is it's a bit redundant really in this case because it doesn't capture everyone who has maybe an invisible disability or a long-term health condition so just to allow numbers is a bit sort of you know probably not the right way to do it but I suspect that is what is happening is that with the gender network is big it's got a lot of people it's got a lot more mem- members and therefore need bigger budget um, so it's a difficult one to kind of see the argument for and again but ultimately, you know, if you run a disability network, we do need proper funding and it and we need proper support. And it's really, really difficult to do that if we don't have the right amount of funding. Yeah, no, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, it's kind of easy as a woman to sit here and say gender equality is not more important. Um, because of course, effectively I'm allowed to say that. But mm. For me, it's true. For me, the you know, equality for a group, I don't care how big a group it is, isn't more important than another. And as an organization, if you've actually got lots of women, for instance, then you've mm. got an awful lot of people already pushing the point. When you've got a handful of people trying to really make a stand and to show disabled people within the organization and those who may come to work for the organization, that actually this isn't just a safe space to be. You will be embraced, you will be appreciated, you'll be respected. That, you know, that's the important factor. So, yes, you should be doing that for gender as well, but you shouldn't be doing it less for disability. So I'll I'll leave my little point there. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's another podcast, I think. But, yeah. you know, it, 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 it's a tricky one, but I do get the point, actually. You think, well, the gender network is very mature, they've probably got, you know, you know, the far down the line with the disability network, we've got a harder gig, you know, we need more support, we need more funds to get the whole thing up and running. So, yeah. I really believe it. But you know what? If we could talk all day, Sarah, I love it. Um, I have to ask you my really important question because I ask all my guest speakers and I love the answers. So I'm going to tell you Harry Potter style. I'm going to give you a magic wand. It's magic. So there's no limitations. 
and you can change something in the world to make it more inclusive, what are you going to do? Well, when I want to change my magic wand, I would like to be able to turn people's mind depth around disability. I mean, it goes back to the earlier conversation we had about using the word normal. So in my mind, it's really easy to um, recruit people with disabilities and get a diverse workforce just to tick the box exercise. It's relatively easy to get workplace adjustment in to enable people to be able to do their job you know, effectively. That's a relatively easy way to do things. What is more difficult is changing people's mindsets and behaviours and you know, removing people's perceptions and stereotypes and attitudes towards disability because like I said at the beginning, a lot of those have been ingrained for so long because they're based on lived experiences. And it can be a bit of an uphill battle to turn the mindset around that. And if we do that, if that happens, then we have a far more inclusive world. And ideally, we wouldn't need to be having these conversations and having DNI teams because everything would be all inclusive. So that would be my wish for magic. Love it. I wish I had the magic wand. I don't, but we can wave some magic as the years go on and we'll see this change. So talking of change, and you've obviously shared a lot with us today. Um, it's been such a pleasure. What would you really like people to take away from this episode? Yeah, there's, there's a few things I like people to take away from this episode. And when first of all, um, stop and think about using the word normal. So if you need the word normal or difficult, stop and think, why are you using that word? You know, challenge your ideas, challenge your stereotypes and perceptions, and also challenge any unconscious bias. So stop and think about that and realise it can be quite harmful to news. Um, the other point I would like to make is, um, you know, really um, talking about accessibility, um, what we need, um, don't put it all in the same bucket, just sort of ask us what we need, um, you know, ask us the relevant question and, and make sure that we you know, we get what we need to be able to do our jobs um, as well as we can do. And then recognise the value that we can bring to the business. You know, we can, you know, we can bring market the value. You know, we can do things really well that other people can't do so well. Um, you know, we can um, bring innovation and creativity to the way that we solve problems at work. Um, you know, we can bring new ideas as well. And also we can actually um, help people to become allies and, and help with their personal growth and be more compassionate and understanding and empathetic. They're really, really important. And then lastly, if you are going to set up a, a disability network, um, make sure that the people who are running it have enough support. They have the time and that they are rewarded accordingly. And most of all, they're recognised properly for all the fantastic work that they do because you know, running these networks are absolutely crucial in any successful business but we need to reward and recognise all the effort and time it goes into running those networks. So be really clear, they put a lot of value on these networks because they're so important. Thank you so much. And thank you for your time today. It's been brilliant. And I'm sure so many of our listeners are going to believe it's brilliant and want to find you. Where do they find you so that they can connect and learn more? 
Okay, um, so all of you have my own website. It's, it's a relatively new website. Um, so it's basically just sarahpetherbush.co.uk. So, um, so you can find me on that. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn, so you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, so my, just my name is Sarah Petherbush. Um, and if you want to email me, it's sarah underscore at um, yahoo.co.uk. Lovely. Thank you. Um, watch this space because I'll be surprised if you don't get people reaching out. But honestly, as always, Sarah, it's been a pleasure. And you know what's really nice, I think, as well, not just chatting to you and not just all the valuable points that you share, but we work in very similar spaces. And I think what's so important for people to recognise is that ultimately, that you know, there's more than just Jodie and Sarah out there, but we're in this for the same intention and we're not in competition we're like one big team um so I think that's also quite a nice thing to be able to actually show the world that you know there are consultants out there for you to reach out to and you know we 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 can collaborate we can chat we learn from each other so yeah, yeah it's, been, it's been fantastic and I totally agree with you Jody. it's been great meeting you and talking with you today because we do have a lot of similar experiences we both run disability networks and you know in a, in a large corporate environment and um, we both have the same passion of you know making of creating a better working world and I just think you know it, it's been great you know talking with you and it's like we said, we're like kindred spirits. We have the same passion um, and it's been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I really look forward to seeing all the great things that you're going to achieve going forward. Thank you, Josie. And thank you to you all for listening. I hope you really enjoyed listening to Sarah. I certainly did. And um, as you can probably tell, we really are kindred spirits. So if you want to get in touch with either of us, please do. And until next time for some more myth busting, Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode. We really hope you enjoyed it. Please rate us and leave us a review. We really want to know what you think. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the amazing guest speakers we have lined up.